Psalm 132. A song of ascents. The Lord remember David and all his afflictions, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, Surely I will not go into the chamber of my house, or go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids, until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah, we found it in the fields of the woods. Let us go into his tabernacle, let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed. The Lord has sworn in truth to David, he will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. For the Lord has chosen Zion, he has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever, here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision, I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There I will make the horn of David grow, I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. Dear brothers and sisters, as we were looking at the first of the Psalms of Ascent, of Ascents in especially 120, 121, 122, and 123, we saw how these Psalms can fit very neatly into a pilgrim journey to the city of Jerusalem for the celebration of one of the great feasts that Israel celebrated three times a year. 120 talks about being at a distance from the house of God and longing for that uh, house of God. Uh, Woe is me that I dwell in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. 121, it's very easy to see that is a psalm that one of the pilgrims would sing, that the pilgrims rather would sing as they drew near the city of Jerusalem, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. 122 is a, a psalm that suits a, a, the pilgrims as they enter the gates of the city. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. And then as they come into the city and even into the house of God, 123 is a recognition of the fact that that earthly house of God is not the main dwelling place of God, but that he dwells above the heavens. Unto you I lift up my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. Now we could take a similar approach, I think, to the last of the Psalms of Ascents in 131 to 134. So in 131, the the psalmist is composing and quieting his soul as he comes into the presence of the Lord. And he calls upon Israel then 
to hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. In Psalm 132, we have a specific call to worship. Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. In 133, we have a celebration of the pleasantness of the unity of the saints. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And in Psalm 134, a call to bless the Lord. Behold, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, and a blessing from the Lord, the Lord who made heaven and earth, bless you from Zion. So all of these then in the context of worship in the house of God. Psalm 132 is, of course, a psalm that celebrates the return of the ark to Jerusalem under David. And that history is recorded for us in 2 Samuel 6 and in 1 Chronicles 13 and 15. The loss of the ark at the time of Eli and the prophet Samuel was a devastating blow for the people of Israel. When they took it to the battlefield as a kind of magic talisman to use against the Philistines, the Philistines captured it and took it to their own land but very quickly were forced to return the ark also. But we find in the book of Psalms, actually, a description of this loss of the ark. It's in Psalm 78, verses 60 and 61. Psalm 78, verses 60 and 61. He forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent he had placed among men, and delivered his strength into captivity, and his glory into the enemy's hand. So God was forsaking, Psalm 78 says, the tabernacle of Shiloh, and delivering his glory into the hand of the enemy, so that the uh, confession of the wife of one of Eli's sons, the glory has departed, was applied specifically to that matter of the ark. That was a devastating blow to the people of Israel. God was, in a sense, no longer among them. His throne, his footstool, had departed from their midst. So that when David brought the ark back, that was a time for them of great rejoicing. And you read about that in first, 2 Samuel 6, rather, 2 Samuel 6, in the account of this return of the ark. It's found in verses 13 to 15 of that chapter, And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of trumpets. There was great rejoicing then in Israel when the ark came back to the city of Jerusalem. It had been gone for a long time, all during the reign of Saul and during the early part of the reign of David. But now finally that ark was coming back, that uh, place of God's rest, of God's footstool and of God's throne. But this story of the ark of the covenant returning to Jerusalem in Psalm 132 becomes a reminder of the promises that God had made to David. 
So we find in the last part of this psalm the uh, covenant of God with David. The Lord has sworn in truth to David, he will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. So God promised to David a son, that he would build him a house and that the son of David also would build for the Lord a house. And he promised to bless his people Israel with his presence in that house. And all this is equally applicable to the church of the New Testament as we look to the Lord to dwell among us, to make his home in his church today. We're going to look at the psalm under the theme, Finding a Dwelling for the Mighty One of Jacob, and we're going to look first at David's oath as it's recorded for us in verses 1 to 6. Then we're going to look at the coming to his dwelling that we find in verses 7 to 10, and finally at God's oath to David in verses 11 to 18. Now, though this psalm is, the occasion for this psalm was the returning of the ark to the city of Jerusalem, I think it's important to see that the psalm goes beyond that especially in the words of David's oath. He says, I will not give sleep to my eyelids or sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. He's not just talking there about the return of the ark, but he's talking much more broadly about his desire to build God a house in which that ark can reside. And so there's really included in these first six verses of the psalm all that David did for the house of God. And that went far beyond bringing the ark back to Jerusalem and and putting it in a tent there and actually bringing priests there to that tent and restoring to some extent the Uh, ceremonies of the law that God required. At least some of the burnt offerings were being offered there at that tent as well. But when you go to later chapters, especially in 1 Chronicles, you find that David did a great deal for the house of God. We find, for example, that he chose the site where the temple would be built. That's in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 and 22. The occasion here is David's numbering of the people, his repentance and the plague that the Lord brought upon the people to chastise David for his sin. And David's sacrifice then to the Lord after he had purchased the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. You read about it in verse 28 of chapter 21. At that time when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. And then if you skip down to verse 20, verse 1 of chapter 22, then David said, this is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. This is where God's house is going to be built. That's what David said at that time about that threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So he chose the site of the temple. We find also in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, 
that he gathered much of the material that would be needed for the building of the temple, stone and timber and gold and silver and bronze and iron and precious stones. All of this stuff was accumulated by David and set aside so that when the time came for the house to be built, Solomon would have these uh, materials available to him. He appointed workmen to uh, do some of the labor at this house of God. But he he not only prepared for the house itself, but also for the worship of God in the house. And so you find in 1 Chronicles 23 that he organized the Levites in their courses and according to their functions, so that when the house was built, they would be prepared to serve in that house. Not as they had served in the tabernacle, that was different services were needed there, but in a new way. With song, for example, which had never before had a place in the house of God. He made the plans for the house itself. That's in First Chronicles 28. And by this, these were given to him by the inspiration of the Spirit and passed on by him to his son Solomon. Just before he, he died and when Solomon was uh, crowned the second time, then David arranged for the people of Israel to offer gifts for the tabernacle, and he himself offered much of his own wealth for the the temple of God. He wrote many psalms, about half of the psalms that are found in the scriptures, and those psalms of David were sung in the house of God from the time of Solomon all the way until the time of our Lord Jesus Christ, and are even sung in the house of God, the church today. David says of himself in 1 Chronicles 29, I have set my affection on the house of my God. I have set my affection on the house of my God. That was certainly true. I think it would not be um, going too far to say that David's reign falls roughly into two parts. In the first part, he devoted himself to the conquest of Israel's enemies and to the extension of the land of promise to the boundaries that God had mentioned already to Abraham. But in the second part of his reign, he devoted himself especially to preparations for the house of God. He talks about his zeal in this matter in Psalm 69. Psalm 69, where he says, The zeal of your house has consumed me. That was true of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our Lord quoted it with regard to him, or his disciples were reminded of it when they saw his zeal for the house. But it was true also of David. The zeal of God's house had consumed him. And this zeal for God's house that David had, was driven by his understanding of the importance of that house for Israel. That was the center of their worship. And though the tabernacle still existed during the time of David, we read in 1 Chronicles 21 that it was in Gibeon, it was no longer at Shiloh, but in the high place at Gibeon, David did not return the ark to the tabernacle. David took the ark and he brought it to the city of Jerusalem and he set up a tent for it there in preparation for this new and permanent dwelling of God, in preparation then for a new center of worship 
for the people of God. Zion was going to be the city of God from this time forward. And that tabernacle, David understood, was a representation to Israel of the presence of God in her midst. And the loss of it then was the loss of something that was uh, exceedingly important to Israel. Perhaps the most important thing in the whole of Israel's worship was that Ark of the Covenant, the footstool of her God. Now what we don't read about, however, in the account in 2 Samuel and in 1 Chronicles is David's oath, which the psalm records. Nothing said in those accounts about an oath that David made, but this psalm informs us that he actually swore an oath, that this is what he was going to do. He said, I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a dwelling for the Lord, for the mighty one of Jacob. Now that's a hyperbolic expression, of course. I will not give sleep to my uh, uh, eyes or slumber to my eyelids. But what David meant by that oath, of course, that he would be zealously engaged in this work. And indeed, he was. Now, a couple of things in addition yet to those notes about verses 1 to 6. First of all, we should notice the names of the Lord in verse 2 first. He swore to the Lord, and he vowed to the Mighty One of Jacob. He swore to the Lord, the eternal, self-sufficient, unchanging Lord, the I Am, the one who had revealed his name to Moses at the burning bush, saying, I am the I Am, and the one who was faithful to his covenant. And he vowed to the Mighty One of Jacob, the one who had chosen Jacob, Israel, for his own peculiar people and had become their mighty God to defend and preserve them through all the years of their history from Egypt up until the present. But those names are repeated. David swore to the Lord and to the mighty one of Jacob, and then he, in his oath, used those same tonight names, verse 5, until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. You see how those names are repeated. David's very conscious then of these two names as he makes this oath. Another very brief note here is about verse 6. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah, we found it in the fields of the wood. Ephrath is a general territory near um, Judah in the uh, tribe of Benjamin. You remember Bethlehem is called Bethlehem Ephrathah at times in the scriptures. And then we found it in the fields of the woods. But when you go back to 2 Samuel 6 and 1 Chronicles 15, 13 and 15, you find no phrase like that, but you find instead that they found it in or near the city of Kirjath-Jerim. So why the difference? Well, that 
um, name, Kirjath-Jerim, means city of forests. And the word that we find here in verse 6, we found it in the fields of the woods, could be translated, we found it in the fields of Jar, another form of that word Jerim. So it's the reference to that same place where David and the people of Israel found the Ark of the Covenant. They had to look for it. It had gone for 40 years or more. And it had been lost to the knowledge of Israel for a considerable period of time as it stood in the house of Obed-Edom. Now one other thing about those first six verses, and that is that it's a prayer. These first six verses form a prayer. Lord, remember David and all his afflictions. How he swore to the Lord. It's asked here then in the psalm that the Lord remembered David for this good work that he had done in preparing for the house of God that Solomon would build. Now, another place in the scriptures where we find this same idea of remembering one for his good works is the book of Nehemiah. And I want to look at a few passages in in Nehemiah, because Nehemiah prays for himself, actually, several times in this book, in these terms. The first is Nehemiah 5, verse 19. Nehemiah 5, verse 19, where he says, Remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. And then you find it three more times in chapter 13. Nehemiah 13, then, in the first, uh, the first one is in verse 14. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its services. Then again, in verse 22, The last part of that verse, Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. And finally, again, the very last line of the book, verse 31, Remember me, O my God, for good. Nehemiah has done all this work of building the walls of Jerusalem and reforming the lives of the priests and of the people and so on, and providing out of his own purse for the table uh, that uh, fed his servants. And he says to the Lord, remember me for what I have done. The Lord is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, the apostle says in Hebrews chapter 6. The Lord is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love. He rewards his people for their good works. And that's what this is all about. Remember David and all the afflictions he suffered because he had set his affection on the house of God. It's a reward not of merit, but of grace. Not deserved, but freely given by God because of the work that his people have done. So that's the first six verses. Now in verses 7 to 10 we find 
He called to come to his dwelling. And this call to come to the dwelling of God is, has two parts. In the first part, it's a call to the people. Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. Notice that verse 6, between verses 6 and 7, there's really a, a historical gap that uh, covers that whole history of David bringing the ark back to Jerusalem and setting it up in the tent. We found the ark, and the next thing we hear is, let's go to his tabernacle. The ark is there now. Let's go and worship there at his footstool. That tabernacle then, I think, and it is the word tabernacle or tent that we have here, not temple, probably refers to that tent that David set up in the city of Jerusalem. Not to the tabernacle as it existed at Gibeon at that time, but to the tent that David had set up there, and particularly to the ark, which is called in other places in the scriptures the footstool of God. So the people see the Ark of the Covenant restored to their midst. And now they, with great joy, say to each other, let's go and worship there. Let's go to that place. Now finally again we can gather at the footstool of God. The rest of the passage, however, is a prayer to God really, to come and dwell in that house. It would be useless for the people to go to that ark if that were all that the ark was, just a box with the law of God in it. The significance of the ark was the fact that it was the footstool of God, and so the people call upon God here in this psalm to come. Arise, O Lord. To your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Come to this place then where your ark is found now and meet with us there so that we may know you and worship you as our hearts desire. Now they call the tabernacle here the resting place of God or the resting place of the Lord. I want to pass over that uh, this afternoon and come back to that actually next week. I want to focus on just that uh, phrase next week, this resting place. This is the resting place of the Lord. So let's just skip over that and we'll come back to that next week. Let's look at the phrase instead in the next part of the verse, the ark of your strength. That ark was a revelation of the power and majesty and glory of God. And I think that here, especially because this is a celebration of the return of the ark to the city of Jerusalem, and therefore the people are remembering the loss of the ark to the Philistines, it's a very particular celebration of the strength of the Lord against the Philistines. You remember that while that ark was among them, the Philistines suffered many plagues. And it was these plagues that the ark of the Lord brought into their midst that made them finally decide that thing's got to get out of here. We've got to send it back to the land of Israel. 
And you remember, of course, the victory that the Lord achieved over the Philistine god Dagon in Dagon's own house. When the Philistines set that ark in front of their idol as a sign of Dagon's victory over Yahweh, the Lord of Israel. The Lord made their God fall down on his face before him. Twice, in fact. So it is the ark of his strength. And the Lord had revealed his strength to the Philistines. And the people of God are celebrating that strength of the Lord here as they come into the house of God. It's the ark of his strength. But at the same time as the ark was uh, restored to its place among the people of God, the priesthood also began to function at that ark, as we've already noted. The priests began to offer the sacrifices again, and so the prayer of the people continues. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. As these priests come into these holy precincts, let them be clothed with the righteousness that is fitting and necessary for them to perform their service there. And this is a reference in the first place to their garments. The garments which were a sign of their righteousness, of their holiness and their consecration to the Lord. Their right, therefore, to come into his house and to serve him there. He's a holy God. He can be served only in righteousness, and the priests have to be a righteous and a holy priesthood in order to come into his presence. But there's a lot more in their being clothed with righteousness than simply their garments, I think, people of God. There's this also, that the priests, as Hebrews 7 tells us, when they entered the house of God, had to offer sacrifices first for themselves, and then for the people. They had to be clothed with the righteousness of that blood of atonement. That blood of atonement had to be shed for them before they could go into that house. They had to be clothed then with the righteousness of God as revealed in that blood of atonement which they shed first for themselves. Let them be clothed with that righteousness. And of course, we might even say they're clothed with righteousness in that it was their task to teach righteousness, the righteousness of God's law, to his people. So let your priests be clothed with righteousness, that is, let them have that righteousness of the blood of atonement which is necessary for their service in the tabernacle, and let them, through that righteousness, serve as our intermediaries with the God who dwells there. The people themselves could not go into that house. They were held, as it were, at arm's length. And the priests were to go on their behalf. Let them, therefore, be clothed with righteousness, so that we, too, may have our place in that house. Of course, all this is fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ, and we are now the new and holy priesthood that our Lord Jesus Christ has uh, formed. And he brings us directly into the house of God. And then through that ministry of the priests in the tabernacle, in the temple that David had set up, let your saints shout for joy. 
Let your saints participate in that worship with their shouts of joy. Their joy was great when the ark was brought back. Their joy was greater when they were permitted again to come to the house of God and to see there the services of the blood of atonement being shed for them and the priests entering God's house on their behalf. Finally, we have in verse uh, verse 10 another part of this prayer. For your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed. And you can take this in two different ways. The question is, who's the anointed that's referred to here? It could be the high priest and the other priests who came into the holy place and offered incense on the altar of incense on behalf of the people of God. That offering of incense was a sign of the prayers of God's people, as Revelation 8 teaches us. It was a sign of the prayers of God's people, and that what we could have here then is that the prayer from the people that God will not turn away the face of those priests who are lifted up, which are lifted up in supplication to him on behalf of his people. Do not turn away the face of your anointed. Or it could be a reference to the king himself, who is the anointed who's talked about in verse 17. Very clearly there, it's not the priest, but the king. And the prayer then could pertain to the prayers, for example, that David made, the prayers of thanksgiving of David, first at the time that he organized the Levites into their courses. For that, you can turn to um, First Chronicles, Let me find my place here a minute. Um, First Chronicles 16, it is. First Chronicles 16. After David had organized the uh, priests and the Levites, and after he had brought the ark into the uh, tent that he had set up for it, you read in First Chronicles 16, verse 7, On that day, David first delivered this psalm into the hand of Asaph and his brethren to thank the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. You have this prayer of thanksgiving and praise then in 1 Chronicles 16. That prayer of thanksgiving and praise could be, in part, what's referred to here when it said, do not turn away the face of your anointed. Again, in First Chronicles 28, or 29, rather, after David had told the people about the plans for building the temple, he blessed the Lord, First Chronicles 29, 
Verse 10, therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly, and David said, blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty. Do not turn away the face of your anointed as he comes to you in this way. It could refer to Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple here in heaven and forgive the sin of your people when they call upon you from this place. Do not turn away the face of your anointed. And it certainly applies as well to our Lord Jesus Christ, who during his earthly ministry offered many prayers for his people, and who continues to offer intercessory prayers for us, now as he sits as priest and king, at the right hand of God. Do not turn away the face of your anointed. For your servant David's sake. Notice that too. For your servant David's sake. That is, I think, a reference to the covenant God had made with David, as recorded in 2 Samuel 7. What he's saying then is, for the sake of that covenant, which you made with David, for the sake of that covenant by which he became your servant. And that really goes back to the beginning of David's reign as well, of course. Do not turn away the face of your anointed. You have made your covenant with David. Therefore, hear your anointed when he comes to you. And that brings us then to the last part of the psalm, verses 11 to 18. In the first part of the psalm, we have David's oath to the Lord. Here in the last part of the psalm, we have the Lord's oath to David. The Lord has sworn in truth to David, He will not turn from it. Of the fruit of your body, I will set upon your throne. That's an unbreakable oath. That's what's emphasized in that first uh, verse here. The Lord has sworn. He swore by himself, just as he had sworn to Abraham, so to David. He swore by himself. So that by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation. He swore in truth, in faithfulness, with no reservation, no inner resolve that perhaps at some point he might turn his back on this oath. He swore in faithfulness, and he will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. And he did not turn from it. He set upon that throne of David, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now verse 12 gives us a little bit of additional matter with relation to this oath. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, 
their sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. Well, David, God gave to David a son and, and many grandsons following that son who sat upon the throne of Israel for many years, 400 years or something like that, until the time of Zedekiah. But the time came, of course, because of the sin of his people when those sons no longer sat on the throne of David. The sons did not keep his covenant and his testimony that he taught them. And eventually those sons did cease to sit upon the throne of David there in Jerusalem. But, but God did not go back on the central aspect of that oath. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. That's what the genealogy of our Lord in Matthew 1 is all about. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He did not break his covenant. He had sworn in truth to David, and he would not turn from it. And that genealogy of our Lord in Matthew chapter 1 really is about David's house, the whole of it. It's about the rise of that house from Abraham until David himself, about the rule of that house from David until Jehoiachin, the last king except for Zedekiah, who doesn't really count because Jehoiachin was the one who stood in the line of Christ, and then about the obscurity of that house from the time of the captivity in Babylon until Joseph, the husband of Mary, and the legal father of David. The whole genealogy then is about the house of David, and it shows how God kept his promise to David. I will set the fruit of your body on your throne. The rest of this passage then, verses 13 to 18, is about various aspects of that covenant. First, the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. It was not David who chose the place of God's house. It was God who chose it. This, he said, to David, apparently. And we don't read about it specifically. This, he said to David, is my resting place right here where you have offered the sacrifices that have stayed the angel's hand. I have desired this place for my resting place, this place for my dwelling. He chose Zion out of all the possible cities of Israel and out of all the possible cities of the world to be that particular place where he would come to his rest where he would dwell with his people, where his footstool would be set, and therefore where his throne would be revealed in the midst of his people. He desired that place. That's an amazing thing, people of God, that God desired that place. First of all, a city of the Jebusites, and then a city of that wayward and sinful people, Israel. He said, that's the place 
that I desire. Twice it's said here in these verses. He has desired it for his dwelling place. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. That's his desire to dwell in his church. His desire to dwell among his people. He loves them and he longs for their fellowship. And then, of course, we have promises also associated with that covenant. Verse 15, I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. You remember that when Solomon had built the house of God in Jerusalem, he provided bread for the people. He sent them away to their homes with bread in their hands. But also in Psalm 65, a psalm about the presence of God among his people. Praise is awaiting you, O God, in Zion, and to you the vow shall be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you all flesh will come. And then in verse 4, Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you, that he may dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. That's the bread that this psalm talks about. And the end of Psalm 65 celebrates that bread. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. That river that flows from the throne of God and is depicted for us also in Revelation. And the trees that grow by that river that bear fruit for the nations. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its ridges abundantly. You settle its furrows. You make it soft with showers, you bless its growth. I will abundantly satisfy her poor with bread. I will clothe her priests with salvation. This goes back, of course, to verse 9. The people prayed, let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and God's answer to their prayer is, I will clothe her priests with salvation. As they are clothed with the righteousness of the blood of atonement, they are clothed with the way of salvation, with that righteousness of shed blood which alone can allow them and my people into my presence and give to them my salvation. Her saints shall shout aloud for joy. That's an answer to the prayer of verse 9 also. Let your saints shout for joy. And God says, her saints shall shout aloud for joy. They will be filled with joy because they too can come into the house of God by that atoning way. And finally about David's son in verses 17 and 18. There I will make the horn of David grow, or I think better really sprout. There I will make the horn of David sprout. That's a reference to our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the horn of David whom God caused to to sprout. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. He will be the light of the world, the light of the Gentiles, shining in the house of God and from that house of God to all the world. His enemies I will clothe with shame. They will suffer defeat at the hands of this great king, and upon himself his crown shall flourish. 
until all the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. But notice, people of God, that all of this happens at Zion. It's all about Zion. It's all about God coming to Zion to make it his resting place and his dwelling place, to set up his throne there. It's all happening today in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. This psalm is equally appropriate for us. As we come into the presence of God, let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place. We are your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests, we ourselves, be clothed with righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And let your saints shout for joy there in your presence. So there are many dimensions to this psalm, one that we haven't really even talked about, the whole idea of that place of of the Zion being his resting place, but You have the return of the ark. You have the building of the temple. You have the fulfillment of the temple in our Lord Jesus Christ and his building of the new house of God in the New Testament. You have victory over the enemies of Christ as his crown flourishes among his people. You have the peace and prosperity of Zion as God says of her, I will abundantly bless her provision and satisfy her poor with bread. And you have the joyful worship of God's people as they come into the presence of this great and glorious God who has blessed them so richly. May God bless us through his word.